Got time for a quick story. Musicians take inspiration in all sorts of manners. And some of the most intriguing are the ones who can take a vision and turn that into sound. It's not the easiest thing to do. But there are some who are, in effect, painters. And Steve Hackett is one of them. He has interpreted a lot of imagery of all sorts throughout his extensive career, primarily solo, of course, with Genesis back in the 70s, but uh, often throughout his solo career. And a new album is coming out for the occasion of this edition of Got Time for a Quick Story. January 22nd, 2021 is the release date for Under a Mediterranean Sky. That is the latest album from Steve Hackett, and we're talking with him once again today. An honor to get to talk again to to Steve Hackett about this album. So let's dive right in, right on in talking about this. Been already listening through the uh, album. I think I've listened to it probably a total of three times now. Um, wow. the, the the preview tracks and uh, enjoying the heck out of it. I'll be. I know. I'd like to go kind of track by track, get some more details on on each one of the cool. inspiration. But to start, where did the first inspiration come of? I want to do. What were you saying? Okay, I want to do this sort of a sort of an acoustic nylon guitar-based album, especially considering the prior one didn't have anything of the sort, and it was all electric. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd avoided doing anything um, with an acoustic guitar. Really, there was a tiny bit of that, but it was not a main feature on anything. Um, and um, <clears throat> I'd been messing around with some guitar tunings. One of them was a sort of G minor, another one was a G major, and uh, I was writing a lot of stuff on that, <clears throat> thinking, first of all, I was thinking they could all be in the same piece. And then I realized I had a number of pieces and I needed to punctuate them with themes. Now, it was my wife who said, um, you could do a much broader album than usual when you're doing acoustic stuff <clears throat> by using this idea of, of, of different countries as themes, places around the Mediterranean. And um, she suggested the title, Under a Mediterranean Sky, <clears throat> which I absolutely loved. So really, it was her input that, that gave it a portal into this kind of music and also gave it a frame in a way. And I think that the way that you receive instrumental music like this, um, if it's got an extra meaning when you're writing it, there's extra depth there. It's 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 a broader canvas. So I have to thank her for that. Was there a particular reasoning for the order of the tracks kind of on this tour of these locations around the Mediterranean? Was there a particular plan to start in Malta and then go to the go to the coasts of Croatia, et cetera, et cetera, kind of moving around that way? Uh, no, we, we, we weren't thinking of it geographically. Um, uh Initially, I, I had two potential openers, one of which is Medina, the one that, that starts out the album. The other one was Sirocco, <clears throat> which had a, a, a um, to my mind, it had an Egyptian flavor. I was trying to describe Egypt, but then beyond that, 
different Arabian places that we'd visited, um, uh, Jordan and Petra, and uh, places that that existed around and and in the desert. And Cairo is basically bordering the desert. And um, we had a trip up the Nile, which was just absolutely amazing. Um, and we took in as many sites as possible. Just stunning stuff that looks like it was painted or sculpted yesterday. Um, that was a huge influence. But in terms of the running order of the album, it's it's always the same in a way. You've got to have all the contenders done and then you figure out which is the best order so that when they follow each other, it works. So <clears throat> I started out with a heavily orchestrated beginning. Then the second track is just acoustic guitar. Then we tend to return to the orchestra again. And, and so it's been the sort of big picture, small picture, big picture, small picture thing that I've managed to continue throughout most of the album, really. Yeah, there's definitely an ebb and a flow to the song. So let's start with Medina in the wa- Medina, yeah. the walled city. Uh, the 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 inspiration for that to start with this the city within a city, if you will. Yeah, uh, in a way, Malta, which is the setting. Of course, you've got, as you say, a city within a city. Um, Valletta is the capital. Malta is the country. And the island, which was heavily under siege in the Second World War. And had been under siege from so many different cultures dating back centuries, of course, millennia. Um, so I wanted to start the album with this sort of siege mentality. Um, so it comes blasting in with orchestra. And then gradually it opens up and um, starts to tell the story in, 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 in retrospect, in my mind. It goes back to an earlier period where it's more primitive music, then eventually, having gone back to return of theme of the siege, um, I wanted it to end with a with a love story. In, in other words, the idea of, of of war and peace, or or rather war and love, and um, so it ends up with a big romantic theme at the end, and it's the longest track on the album, coming in at about nine minutes. Um, and um, other tracks use this thematic device, a little bit like concertos or suites, where you develop things in a, in a classical way. So I suppose it, in, in spirit it's classical, but then it's landscaping in terms of spirit, really. Um, my dad was a painter, painted many very beautiful um, landscape scenes, and this is my version of it, doing it, doing it with music. Adriatic Blue, the uh, as, as it as is written in in the copy here, the deep blue sea yeah. along the Croatian coastline. I, I looking up yeah. a little bit about that. I I never realized. I mean, a lot of this is introduction to me, even looking around the Mediterranean because never been there before yeah. in my life and seeing yeah. the the white cliffs of Croatia. I'm used to the white cliffs of Dover, but not the white cliffs of Croatia. Yeah, yeah. well, Croatia. Um, the extraordinary thing about the coastline is that it looks like the place should be called. Uh, creation, to be honest, and um, it looked like I would imagine the Garden of Eden may have looked, if such a place existed, in a way, it's a very idealized, extraordinary coastline, so very, very beautiful. Sometimes you look out and you can't tell whether 
what you're looking at is foliage or if it's if it's if it's lakes or trees or what it is it all seems to mix and um of course first time i was there we ended up in in dubrovnik where i was working with a hungarian band um uh, the guys from hungary up called jave and it when i play with them it's it's 99% improvised music and um I finally got to the place where in Dubrovnik they have this um, extraordinary thing. The rooftops of Dubrovnik have this this kind of um, terracotta look to them. And then there's a fort where we were playing, as it happens. And years and years ago, again, it was something that my, my father had done. He One of his early paintings before he became a professional artist was the rooftops of Dubrovnik. And... Um, so there I was and experiencing this and I wanted to create an idea of, of the celebration of it. Um, so even though it's an unaccompanied guitar piece with nylon guitar, I wanted it to sound like fanfares in as much as you could do something that sounds very exuberant but thematic with a nylon guitar. It's a stretch of the imagination, but I remember seeing Segovia show this when he was doing um, something to camera we're saying this is brass, this is cello, this is such and such, pianissimo, showing the different colours of the guitar. So um, I've played that to a few people and they thought maybe, is it 12-string guitar? But no, it's nylon. It's just played very, very bright near the bridge. And um, those chords are very triumphant sounding. We touched on Sirocco a little bit and the the winds of of the the sirocco essentially the the meteorological effect of that you can feel that in in the instrumentation and i i have to i mean i think it's pretty self-explanatory that that also must have tied into the arrangement of that particular work yeah um again i i think it's so much about landscaping really and um having visited egypt of the last Arabian place we we went to um, the Nile is so unspoiled in most places it is just lined with palm trees it's extraordinarily idyllic it's as if um, time has been rolled back 3,000 years uh, when I was first when I was first there opposite the Sphinx I had my notepad out the whole time and I was just hearing music nonstop, so I was writing this down. So whenever I travel to these exotic locations, I tend not to take an instrument with me, but I've got a notepad and ideas come up. So I was writing them down. First of all, I was thinking in terms of rock music. Um, but then I thought, if you strip away rhythm, perhaps it'll it'll work in another way. It'll It'll float into view, pretty much like a mirage. I've actually sat at a place called the um, the Mirage Cafe when I was in Jordan, and it, it, <laughs> there there is a real thing. It, it looks like it looks like water. It's and this this little trompe d'oeil, the trick of the eye, and um, you get this kind of stuff. And, I, and in a way, I was also thinking right at the end of it that the way Grieg wrote, Norwegian composer sometimes taking his time about the very last chords of something and really drawing it out 
um, that was an influence, amongst other things, of course. Mm. Joie de vivre. Uh, I love the bounce to that. It really, really stood out to me in that. Was there a particular, and I've always been, been fascinated by France, never been there, but studied it in, in the language in high school. Was there any particular part of France that that somehow, and you mentioned some of the aspects of like the vistas and the music and the food that influenced this particular sound and that little jumpiness that I sort of detected in the rhythm of that song? Well, um, I traveled a lot in in France, um, did many gigs in many places, and um, particularly with Genesis in the 1970s. I mean, we would draw up at places, and first of all, it would seem as if, um, oh, we're, we're closed, and there's this sort of surly kind of, oh, if you must, and then we go in, and then it suddenly produced this extraordinary banquet and um it's the way the french were it was this kind of once they open up to you suddenly it all changes and um i remember traveling through the loire valley with genesis we'd done germany we went through the rhine the rhine valley then we were through the loire valley following the wine the wine growing region everywhere and of course um we were young guys at that point, um, enjoying ourselves, drinking with a will. And um, it was always great fun. I loved playing, loved playing Paris. Also, of course, uh, Belgium, which was the first place that really talked to Genesis. Um, uh, they were extraordinarily hospitable. So same language, smaller country, but Joie de Vivre also um, relates to them. And it was it was a title suggested by Joe because um her family um, on her father's side were French and she got used to going over there. And, uh, you know, when she was a small child, they were getting her drunk at the age of four. So that's that kind of joie de vivre, a very different kind of attitude towards the sort of prohibition that uh, the rest of the world seems to be uh, subject to. But, you know, that's that's the French for you. The memory of myth has the violin Christine Townsend playing. How does yeah. how, how was that? How was her work uh, selected to play in a in a piece about Greece. What was the connection there? Uh, well, again, uh, I have to mention my wife again. Um, that's her melody. Uh, Joe wrote that that line that um, Christine plays at the beginning. Now, later in the track, Roger King orchestrated it. And so you get all the harmonies and then you get it with guitar. And then uh, down the line, you get it with uh, I was using the the um, Peruvian Chirango um rather like either a mandolin or um um the bazooki so i was using it in the in that sort of what i what i think of as, as, as a mandolin style and um even just a combination of, of, of those two small stringed instruments creates a big a big picture the other stuff i was doing was more improvised and that's something that joe said she wanted me to do to play in almost like a folk style. So I was, um, I wasn't refining it. I was doing spontaneous stuff and she wanted it to be like that because she said, you know, if we give it this title, the memory of myth, it'll seem like a, like a distant dream, like something you can't quite hold on to. So it's the most impressionistic, I think of, of pieces on the album, which incidentally I had a great time doing. I loved doing the album. What drew you to in effect, Cover. I mean, the one kind of quote-unquote cover of uh, Scarlatti's Sonata. 
Um, I'd seen, I, first of all, I had an album of, um, of Segovia playing that, and it was called The Song of the Guitar. And what I didn't realize was that all those pieces had been taken from a film that he made playing at the Alhambra uh, in Andalusia. And um, I thought the piece really showed the colors of the guitar. He was using a lot of reverb on it. And um, I got something like the same sound, but um, we decided to compress it some more to give it a kind of power. And then um, as well as working with, with, with the reverb, I wanted to do this thing that, that, that he didn't do, was shown, but it was shown to me by uh, another guitarist who I, th I think invented this technique. Um, a great friend of mine who passed recently, his name was Theodore Cheng. And uh, although he spoke with a British accent, he looked like a Chinese um, Segovia. He had that look, the, the sort of um, very wise, very gentle. Um, and he showed me this technique, which was cross string trilling. So across two strings, when you're playing semitones, um, if you use four fingers, uh, and for anyone who's a, a classical player, they would understand a P-A-I-M <laughs> to get that combination. And um, it's a fantastic technique. Um, it's um, It enables you to make the trills really stand out rather than hammering on and off where the trills are a little bit submerged or um, don't really have the power. So with regular classical technique, uh, the trills don't have the power but this this other technique that i'd heard two other guitarists use uh, theo and um elliot fisk now i don't know whether he showed it to elliot who'd worked with leonard bernstein uh but um uh it's it's a very very interesting very intricate technique and uh nobody who tries it gets it first time believe me it took me it took me ages to get this this technique and i've used it fairly liberally on on the album uh, so I used it on the Scarlatti because Scarlatti, of course, keyboard player, born 1685, same year as Bach and Handel, uh, Domenico Scarlatti, worked with, with the with the Portuguese court. Very ornate playing, harpsichord work, beautiful stuff. Um, so I was trying to reflect the power of the harpsichord, but using a guitar to do it. Casa del Fano, uh, getting over towards Pompeii. There's a brightness to this particular yeah. work. How did that? How did that come from from that particular location in the little statue of the Fawn? Um, first of all, uh, some years ago, we were going to do um, a couple of live acoustic concerts with with a trio, um, and. Um, when we were rehearsing, I just came up with this idea on the spot. Um, and I'd been inspired by visiting Pompeii for years. Um, I started going oh, almost 50 years ago to, to Pompeii. Every time I can, I'll, I'll go and visit. But the very first time I went, um, it was very, very early in the morning and I just broke away from the main group I wanted to be on my own to explore the place on my own. There was nobody there. Imagine having a whole city unearthed from volcanic eruption where you're the only player on the stage. And it was wonderful to uh, to walk out on it. And, and I felt so at home 
um, I almost felt that I'm going to nip around the corner and get a loaf of bread. It felt that intimate and so close. Um, and of course, uh, what was, well, it would have been one of the most beautiful houses. All that's left of it, the atrium, the inside, is just this little statue. So it's been named, it's been named um, the House of the Fawn, Casa del Fauno in Italian. Um, and it was Roger who came up with the um, the kind of elegiac adagio-like introduction to it, which was based on something that he'd done live just in one go, which sounded amazing to me. And I said, "Can if you can remember exactly what you did?" So we got we got a we got a film of it, and he uh, listened to it and he said, "I think I can do this slightly better." Um, and so he really came up with that, and we shared the the, the, the credit on that. The the um, it's also a flute feature for my brother John and and Rob Townsend, um, and um, it's basically a lullaby. So it's a very gentle piece, although it's largely improvised uh, with a big solo in the middle from flute. Um, basically, I was thinking of something very very simple, almost like a school song tuned to um, a G major. It's basically three chords um there are, there are a few diminished ones that, that crop up at, at a certain point but the second half of it i just wanted it to be like the simplicity of life in pompeii as i imagined it at one time the beauty of it the gentleness of it the next one is so there's so much musical depth in terms of instrumentation with the dervish and the djinn that's the next one in in line bringing together especially the geopolitical aspect of this. And I'll let you describe how, how all of that came about with the history of Persia to what we have today and then the instrumentation that came in, including the tar, which I have to presume is, and if I could just do some research on my own, but I have to presume that is the ancestor of the guitar, for example. Um, well, uh, yeah, all of this, uh, if you're talking about guitar ancestors, it seems as if um, the ancient Greeks came up with... Um, an instrument called the kithara, which sounds awfully close to the word guitar. But of course, um, I think the idea of, of, of guitar means means gut. Um, and I think guitar means gut gut for some reason. Um, the tar um, is a, a small scale instrument, but the guy who plays for us on this, his name is Malik Mansurov from Azerbaijan. And um, He's one of the players on it. The duduk starts it out, this blown instrument, which is so uh, so often found in, in exotic film soundtracks. And um, the guy that that, um, that did that, um, his name is Petrosan, and um, he is from, he's from Armenia. Now these two, I constructed this thing together, and then those two nations were at war with each other over a, a disputed region that the... Um, Novorno Karabakh region. Anyway, but I always think that music does something that politicians don't do. You know, politicians seem intent on driving people apart, whereas music um, is a kind of um, a resolving thing or a healing thing. And um, there are other players on this. Um, we've got uh, beautiful sax playing from. Um, uh, from Rob Townsend once again playing soprano sax but the idea of it was something which gets faster and faster like a whirling dervish and I've seen dervish dancers 
um, twice when I've been in Egypt. And it's an extraordinary thing to watch because they, they transform as they, as they spin and they, they pull things out from their clothes. And, and at one point it just looks like they turn off the lights and it looks like a spinning top, you know, like a whole kind of um, merry-go-round going round. But it's going very, very fast. You just wonder how it's physically possible. So it's music, music to a, um, uh, an imaginary um, dervish. And the gin, of course, is not, not the drink, but in this case, it's the genie. So all stuff from that area, Persia, Turkey, as we, as we know it, Istanbul, one time Constantinople, all of that. So although I haven't visited Turkey myself, not yet, um, my wife Jo had. So again, it was a, um, a title suggested by her. So as you can imagine, she's had quite a lot of influence on this uh, album. It's a nice musical contrast to then go right to Lorato, as, as noted, love from the African Swana tribe. Yeah, um, Lorato, um, basically, it's an unaccompanied guitar piece, but I like to think that it's rapturous. It's, again, it's deliberately, it's in, a, in, a, in an open G tuning, and, and to get that, just taking the bass strings, both bass strings down a tone, and that gives you um, the ability to play more freely in the key of G. You've got lots of open strings that fit that, and it also works in, in the key of D. Uh, so I'm hovering between those two keys doing this, this, this piece. Starts out in G. Um, uh, in a way, it's deliberately naive, but keeps the pace up. So um, uh, I want a kind of innocence that suits the guitar. There's something about the purity of sound of the guitar. And um, I, I don't apologize for it. I, I think it's not introverted. I think it's radical. So it's, I think it's, for me, it's radical romanticism. On to the next one, Andalusian Heart. And I perked up in some of your interviews when you were mentioning Concierto, and I apologize if I screw up the pronunciation, Concierto de Aranuez from Rodrigo, and the tie into yeah. to sketches of Spain. And I remember that piece because that, going going back to the adagio, into what Miles Davis did, and then into yeah. what Chick Corea did, which ultimately lead, sure. led to what Al Jarreau did with I Can Recall Spain, which is quite honestly one of my favorite vocal jazz songs I've ever performed in my life. It is It might be the number one favorite vocal jazz piece I've ever performed. So as soon as I heard that connection, I went, hey, wait a minute, that's... That is a connection there. You noted that in, in those interviews. How did that those two tie together combined with everything that you saw in Spain? Um, to write something in, in, in a typical Spanish uh, style, um, I'd been trying to write this sort of thing for years. And um, I was thinking of Rodrigo and I was also thinking of Leonard Bernstein. Um, and... Um, a combination of the two really produced this track. It's thematic. First of all, the, the, the theme comes in with um, guitar playing the chords with very gentle orchestra behind it. Um, we use oboe. Um, he's a French oboe player who lives in, um, in Arizona. And um, we've become friends. He sent his performance. It had to be because this was... You know, it is a lockdown album. Um, the guitar carries 
the main weight of the um, of the piece. And again, I wanted to keep the pace up. And there's something about Aaron Wes. I remember the first time I'd seen it live. I'd heard it once and, and fell in love with it. Watching it live, I think it was Julian Bream, and he did something in a rising section before the big theme theme comes in where it sounded to me like the, the sound of a thousand fountains it sounded like harp but only more so it just seemed to be impossibly full and busy and so um i use this technique that i've i've developed for um doing a thousand things at once with the right hand <laughs> and um uh of course um it's a rising it's a rising shape and um I wanted it to build to fever pitch and then bring the theme in at the end. And it's Christian Townsend once again um, with, with a major amount of, of, um, of violin and viola work on it, plus other instruments. Um, and I think it's one of the best payoffs that we've got mm-hmm. on the album. The, the big theme comes in, big romantic thing. At the end, it's, it's one of several uh, moments where we get a big, theme coming in where we're we're um uh we're giving it the the wide silver screen treatment really at that point that of course the penultimate track the final one the call of the sea and it's sort of a nice peaceful conclusion and then it's in effect a focus on what is the mediterranean ultimately the core about well it's the sea the mediterranean sea right there and imagine it's easy to picture yourself being on the water listening to that particular work um i think the guitar is um it's, it can be a very evocative instrument especially if you're arpeggiating uh quickly um to make it bubble away so i i introduced it after this very kind of um very tranquil introduction um very quickly it starts bubbling away furiously um, and then the, the the second half of of the of the thing is something that I'd written, and I thought it sounded uh, when I recorded it. I thought I don't know if this is any good. You know, this sounds a little bit like Bach, but not as good. And um, again, Joe said to me, "Well, what if you orchestrate it so you've got it supported by strings?" And Roger did some things, and it. It sounded so different. It kind of gave, gave it wings. And I'm very glad I fished it out of the bin. And we used it to um, to close the album. So um, doing something, again, very, very gentle. So um, it's back to that almost that sort of siesta feel that that I, I'd recorded other acoustic albums. But I wanted to have the pace in, in this on this album. So... It's a pacier album, but right at the end, yes, I've got to let it go out on that tranquil sea. There's no no other way. So it goes out on a sunset for me. It is a musically rewarding album. It is a musically deep album, and it comes out very soon. And I would encourage anyone listening to give it a full listen through a few times over, like I did, Under a Mediterranean Sky. Steve Hackett, thank you for taking some extra time to go into detail on all things about this album and looking forward to the official release and more touring and even more music coming from you down the road. Thank you so much, Luke. It's really great to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Like I said, musically deep, 
there is a lot of inspiration and artistry that went into that album. And definitely give it a listen and understand all of the background to it when you get the opportunity. Under a Mediterranean Sky, the latest album from Steve Hackett comes out January 22nd. If you're listening before the 22nd, it was already out. If you're listening after the 22nd or on the 22nd, you can learn more about what Steve Hackett is up to at his website, HackettSongs.com. HackettSongs.com. You can also find him on a lot of social media outlets as well. And well, there's going to be more coming from uh, him, including the uh, Seconds Out and More World Tour 2021 2022. A lot of dates right now in Europe. Maybe at some point we'll see some tour dates over here in the United States. That would be a must-watch. Well, wherever you get to to see it, it would be a a must-attend if you get the opportunity. That has been the latest edition of Got Time for a Quick Story. Thanks, as always, to Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. The the radio station that I work for and the place that provides the facilities to do these interviews, you can watch more of these interviews. Click on the YouTube channel at GreatestHits981.com. GreatestHits981.com. Click on the YouTube channel. You can listen to and or watch a lot of these interviews with a lot of artists uh, that uh, either we play here on Greatest Hits 98.1 or are connected to artists we play here on Greatest Hits 98.1. Like, for example, Genesis, of course, with uh, Steve Hackett there. We play a lot of the um, Genesis era music from the, from later 70s into the 1980s, but definitely a connection right there. You can also subscribe to this podcast, Got time for a quick story? Find it on a lot of the usual platforms through um, your Android device, Apple device, Stitcher, TuneIn, etc., etc. You can find it in a whole lot of places. Subscribe so you find out about new episodes. And also uh, rate it, preferably highly, so the word will spread even more. Got time for a quick story? I'm Luke Anthony.